Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, just through our eyes alone, we're taking in something like 8K resolution every waking second. To simply function, our brain needs to focus. So how does the brain decide what to keep and what to throw away? To find out, neuroscientists created a genetic algorithm to ask neurons what they wanted to see. The results are kind of unsettling, to be honest. Here to tell us about them is Carlos R. Ponce. He's assistant professor in the Department of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School. Uh, welcome to the program, Carlos. What is Xdream? All right. Thank you very much for having me. So Xdream is one of the first collaborations between a living brain and an artificial intelligence system, uh, a neural network that is specialized in creating pictures. And the way that this works is that we um, usually in, near, in, in our line of work in visual neuroscience, when we want to understand what a neuron in the brain is actually responding to in the real world, we can pre-select pictures and we'll show them to say uh, um, an animal as we record from the animal's brain from one of the neurons in it. And if we get the right pictures, sometimes the neuron will respond and give us a lot of electrical activity and say, yes, yes, so this is, uh, this is an interesting thing according to the neuron's perspective. And I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing a little bit here, but uh, you know, if you'll tolerate that. <laughs> so the problem is, what pictures do we use? Because you know our eyes, we're used to seeing millions of different things every single day and our brain is fine, but how do we show what pictures do we choose? And so that's been the case for several decades now where sometimes we get lucky in the pictures and this is what the whole field does. So what we decided to do was something different. We decided to find out if we can take some of these deep neural networks that are good at creating images and then basically putting them together with uh, what you said, a genetic algorithm and linking them to the activity of a neuron in the brain of a monkey. What you've done essentially is put a wire that reads information of a neuron uh, that's in a live living monkey, um, and you're, you're then sort of showing it a sort of a mixture of random images and mm -hmm. seeing when the neuron fires. What, what, does, what does a firing neuron mean? Does it, does it mean good or does it mean more of this or go towards this? What, what does a neuron mean in the brain when it fires? Yeah, that's a great question. So in our, in this, in, you know, our understanding in the field is that you know, the brain communicates by transmitting action potentials, electrical impulses to, from neuron to neuron. So when a neuron gives a lot more in, uh, electrical impulses, it means that the neuron is communicating something important to the rest of the brain. Right. So, more, the more, the better. So, so the, the neuron firing a lot means something important is going on, pay attention to it. And if you're plugging this wire into a neuron in the part of the area of a brain of a monkey that recognizes faces, what happens? If you happen to know that, where, that this neuron is in a place of the brain that recognizes faces, then you show it faces, right? But sometimes you don't know what this neuron is gonna respond to. So what do you do? How do you pick your pictures? So now what we can do is we can take these neural networks and can basically take the activity, the wire, the, the electrical activity coming from the brain, and we can link it in an algorithmic way, which means that it's not an entirely physical connection. We show the pictures to the monkey and we listen and we see what, this, what the neurons' responses are. And then based on those responses, we can now take the, tell the neural network, rather the neural network does it itself, we'll come up with different kinds of pictures. And then if the neuron says fires more, 
then it says, all right, this picture looks good. So we're going to save this picture. We're going to reproduce it with variations and now show that ne next batch to the neurons. And uh, does the neuron say, oh, yes, th this version is even better. So you can do that real time over tens of minutes until suddenly the neuron begins to fire so much that you know you've identified the kind of information that this neuron must learn to encode about the world. Whoa. So you're saying fr from this neuron, there's a wire that basically triggers uh, a sort of an influence on the sort of images the monkey sees. So um, if it likes it, you, you, say, you, you store that and you say, okay, more images like this. And you're, you're essentially narrowing down the sort of perfect image for this neuron to go nuts on. But what, exactly. what, so what does that look like on the screen? Like, what do the first images look like? And once you're refining it, like, what did that, that neuron show you? God, that's crazy. Yeah, so this was what's, what's interesting. So this, this neural network that we're using, somebody else had trained before. And it has its own little style. So you can, you know, for, for the uh, listeners, you can think of the pictures as looking more like an abstract painting. It's just a, a, a texture that is, that's got color and lines. They're not very sharp, the lines. It's, it's kind of a hazy, colorful pattern. Maybe think of a, of a candy shop. And that's what it randomly creates, what the generator randomly creates. Right. But when we couple it with the neuron, and the first time we did this, as you mentioned, we did it in a part of the brain where we know the neurons respond to faces. So what we started to do, just as a proof of principle, see if it worked, we connected it and we began to see that this, this candy shop multicolor haze suddenly began to grow eyes. It began to grow two little dots right next to each other, <laughs> along with a little shape around it that looked more like a head. Not the whole face, not the whole, just a very abstract thing that we could recognize as a face. We went what? on to it. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that, uh, you know, most of the time you'll get things that you recognize in the world and you can identify, oh, that's related to a face, that's related to a monkey. That's, But a lot of the time it's, it's shapes that we've never seen before that nobody in the seven year history of our field had ever come up with. And so I think this is a way for the brain to communicate directly to us <laughs> what it is that it is encoding about the world. So this wire goes into an individual neuron? Yeah, so we can do it with individual neurons. We can do it with small groups of neurons. Uh, we're exploring even, even larger scopes. So if you had enough wires to plug into enough neurons, would you get a, a very good facial representation if you were plugging into that area that, that represents faces in our brain? That's, that's, a, that's a great question, I, and that's part of the thing we're trying to understand because one of the things we don't know about these neurons is do they encode something that we have a name for? So do they encode really the whole of a face or do the neurons really just recognize, just store enough information that you could use to discover any kind of face? So it's a question of how specific the brain needs to be. And as you pointed out at the beginning in your introduction, there is so much information in the world that we know that the brain cannot possibly store all of it. Right. It's got to be making some trade-off decisions and saying, okay, I don't need to remember the whole face. I just need to remember these three or four features that are present in almost every face. And that way we can identify faces just by putting them together in a more abstract way. So what does that tell us about 
vision or does it tell us anything? Because we see, obviously, in uh, when we see someone's face, it's in very high definition. Does it mean that there are neurons around this individual neuron that put together would give us a cr- crystal clear face? Or does it mean that the brain, the brain doesn't process all of the vision that comes through? Uh, we, we see it, but the brain doesn't bother actioning half of that because all it needs to know is two eyes and a line. That's the face. Yes. I mean, so this is this is what is what is so thrilling about this. I mean, we, when we start to think about how are we going to reconcile our perception of the visual world, which is, as you can see, it's so intact and it's rich and it feels like it's very complete. Right. Um, but it doesn't follow that every that the brain itself and the way that it operates really creates that representation on a point by point basis. You know, in other words, in other words, we could be filling in a lot of detail using other kinds of neural processes that really aren't stored in the visual system. And there's a lot of optical illusions that tell you this, that um, a lot of the things that we think we perceive when we look at the world is our sort of reconstructions or a sort of kind of almost illusions. Yeah. And, and so one of the things we want to find out if, if, you know, what is the line? How much information is there in the visual cortex and how much does the brain just reconstruct in trying to give us our perception? This um, this uh, monkey, Ringo, I believe his name is, when its neuron was firing because it liked the look of a face, did that look like anyone? <laughs> That's a great question. So our first monkey was Ringo. We've tested this now in, in, in over a dozen monkeys, uh, but he was the first. And one of the things that we could evolve, or that's, that's what we call the process, it's easier to say. Um, Rather than refine. Yes, exactly. Because as you pointed out, it's, it's, you know, the picture changes through a selection process. So it's an evolution, really. Right. Um, and um, yeah, so one of the things that we noticed in these early experiments was that some of the pictures, some of the images that were synthesized by these neurons, sometimes would add little details. So you'd get something like a monkey face. Monkeys like looking at monkeys, so it would make sense. Huh. Uh, but sometimes there would be a little bit of, a, of an extra dot of color that would, might look like a collar. And uh, monkeys have collars in the lab. And yeah, at least one of these animals had a little monkey that with a red collar that lived in front of him for several months. Sometimes we would also find other neurons that would create sort of human looking faces, but covered with blue, with blue hats. And that's the necessary personal protective equipment or uh. animal care staff use uh, uh, in our facilities. So that suggested to us that some of these neurons, that this information is um, learned through experience and not necessarily built in. It's a big question in the field where these representations come from. We think that, uh, that they're being learned. So these, these neurons uh, were firing when they saw something that reminded them of uh, a caretaker or, um, or one of the scientists doing the research. And the more that evolution happened, the clearer this image became exactly and uh you know there are many ways to confirm that because then we can go back if we still have the neuron under the wire sometimes you know the experiments don't last forever they can last very long but sometimes we can actually go back and show them real pictures of the natural world including of pictures that you know correspond to some of these animal caretakers and then we find that the neuron will also respond to those pictures which means that there we got lucky we we found out the real world origin of these neurons encoded activity. But like I said, 
most of the time it's very hard to relate it and, and that's what's exciting about this what it's showing us what we don't know yet what is the future for this sort of research because you're you're talking about very rudimentary but very clearly mind reading well, where do you think this sort of technology can bring us well that's a great question it's uh, sometimes um it, it's hard to imagine how it could be applied um well, sometimes it can be a little scary to think about the idea that we can that this kind of technology could be misused uh, in for certain applications. Our personal goal here is to try and understand the best way to create a neural network uh, that abstracts the world the same way that the brain does. Um, I actually I trained as a physician, and I spent some time in the medical field seeing how some of these artificial automated systems could really improve the lives of people by, you know, for example, having medical images go through artificial algorithms that can detect and disease and assist the you know, physicians in, in their own diagnosis. Um, we would love to help develop that kind of system. And I think one way to do that is to identify the best strategies that the brain uses to try and abstract and compress the visual world so that we can then have a guidepost to say, all right, whatever artificial network comes next, might benefit by having the same representations. How do we help this network build them in as well? So um, that could be a, a future application for this kind of research. I have seen some of the images, and it is important, I suppose, to point out to people that the the images are, for the most part, very still, very abstract, right? For them, yeah. this 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 honing in front of your eyes, where a face certainly suddenly appears through evolution, being read from that monkey's brain. That you know, that's not a very sharp image. It's sometimes open to interpretation, but most of the time, it's much more abstract than that, right? Is that just because do you think it hasn't been shown the right random images, or is it because lots of things are interesting to to a neuron, even if they're just new to us? Yeah, you know, that's something that we're really thinking about a lot. So one thing to note is that the generator that we use has a visual style. Pretty much every generator, and by the way, the official name for these networks are generative adversarial networks, and they were created by the machine learning community, uh, Ian Goodfellow and others. Um, we are, as biologists, we just use them. Um, but they all have different styles, and there are some new generators that actually are very photorealistic and they can create objects that look like almost like things in photographs with minor variations. And we are testing those as well. We are finding, though, that some of these neurons don't really care that much about whether an object is photorealistic, whether the image comes from one of those very realistic generators, or whether it's more abstract. Part of what we, the reason we think for that is that, you know, the world, let's say that you have only 10 neurons to identify almost most images in the world. In that case, it doesn't help you to have a very specialized neuron. What you should have is something that, for example, detects rounded curvatures or with a certain color. Um, in that way, you can use that neuron to detect not just faces, but you can use it to detect pots, clocks, fruits. So we think that the abstractness of these pictures could be a trade-off of what it, what it means to, for that neuron to be useful in classifying more than one thing. What about audio? Is it possible to do the same with sound to see what sort of sounds a monkey might like to hear and whether or not that sounds anything like a human or a chimp voice? So we actually have implanted some arrays in, in visual, uh, in auditory cortex, 
And as it turns out, um, there are uh, deep learning networks that can also help generate different kinds of sounds. And that's one of the times where I really uh, feel it's unfortunate that our training is so specialized because I know so little about the about uh, listening an auditory auditory cortex that I think it's simply outside of the scope of what we can do in my lab. Yeah. Yes, this can be done in principle with uh, a lot of different kind of sensory modalities, and I would hope that this kind of research generates excitement enough with uh, in other uh, fields of neuroscience so they can they can go after. Well, Carlos Ponce, Assistant Professor in the Department of Neurobiology at Harvard Medical School, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Future Proof Extra from News Talk.